0: Hello, and welcome to the S yes code podcast, a show all about the S yes code pattern and the tools it implemented. Today, we have Sam Scott, co founder and CTO of Oso, joining us on the show to talk about their system for authorization. With Sam, we talk about modeling, enforcement, and architecture of authorization systems, as well as their programming language, Polar, which is purpose built for authorization. Let's get started. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Sam Scott, co founder and CTO of Oso. It's great to have you. Can you uh, introduce yourself? Tell me a little bit about
1: yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, I'm Sam, the co-founder of CTO at Oso. Before I was doing this, I did a PhD in cryptography. I've been a long-term programmer, who's source contributor, fan of Rust and all things coding. Excellent.
0: What kind of open source
1: projects have you been into? Basically, I've just, and I've always been a fan of the ethos of open source. Right back when I started programming, I did a math undergrad. I started learning programming through that. And I had a teacher who's a contributor to the SageMath. It's like a mathematical suite written in Python and some other tooling. And so I just started attending. They had these open workshop days and there's one at my university. So I attended that. And that was like my introduction to the open source contribution world. I was writing something. What was it? It was something that could compute binomial numbers in like integers mod P or something like that. Very mathy. Later I go into cryptography. I did. I could feed some
0: open source Rust cryptography things. And then recently my company does a big open source library thing. I've always loved cryptography and it's interesting trying to explain how it works. There's this one YouTube video I've seen, which is like the colors mixing. You can mix colors, but you can't unmix them very easily. I just love that analogy of cryptography.
1: Yeah. Analogies go a long way in cryptography. There's like other good ones where you have a lockbox that you can put a key in it, but you lock it with with someone else's key or like you... Close a the padlock, they have the key to the padlock. Your key is inside the lockbox. And now I just go a long way in cryptography because it's like otherwise ways. It's just bizarre, abstract mess.
0: I wanted to talk today a little bit about yes code and a lot about OSO and authorization and RBAC and, and those types of things. I love programming. I think programming is a total superpower. Being a programmer, I can create almost anything. But every time I have an idea, I always get really frustrated that I have to start from like the most rudimentary building blocks ever. And so tools like Oso and other YesCode tools, which provide high-level domain-specific primitives that I can remix and compose how I want to, really make my life a lot better. And I would love to hear a little bit from you about your philosophy towards how to design a developer-focused tool and what appeals to you about this idea of YesCode. So this is a topic that I was thinking about
1: recently. We were actually running a talk proposal for rust I don't want to turn this into a whole thing about Rust and White Rust, but I did have a very, I had a very like career changing moment for me with Rust, which was, I was doing an internship at Mozilla and I was trying to write some cryptographic primitive things in C and C++ and I was failing miserably because I wasn't a C programmer and I didn't have that experience. I didn't have that knowledge. And so everything I was trying to do was just resulting in faults and error messages I couldn't understand. And I just told myself, it's fine. I'll stay in academia I'll be a researcher and I won't be a programmer. I then... You know, I was Mozilla, I'd heard about Rust and I started reading through the Rust book on the way on the flight back. The tooling around it basically told me how to do like systems level programming. The things that blew my mind about it was that it had a fantastic package manager, like built into the compiler, basically into the core tooling around things like Cargo. So the, the week I'd spent on my internship fighting with CMake, trying to get the like entire Firefox build chain to compile and stuff like that was replaced by, you just run like Cargo build and it ultimately downloads everything and runs the compiler having these like beautiful error messages telling you, you can't try and mutate this thing in two places because this thread changes it, the other thread might not know. The whole tooling around it was amazing from a just ease of use saving time perspective. It was those error messages that like told me what I was doing wrong and sort of told me how to fix it. And then it was the, and I know this is a a thing that you're, Sort of a big fan of in the Yes code thing was kind of the primitives that Rust provided, the concepts it had around the type system, the ability to represent different states inside of an enum, or the trait system it had. It just had a lot of these really powerful building blocks, and to me, that combination of everything just it meant that it took me not that much time to to get to a point where I could feel like I could proficiently wield those incredibly powerful tools, and then have the confidence to go and build. As I said at the beginning, I could then go and contribute to open source cryptographic libraries, pretty high stakes stuff. And I was someone who just, you know, a few months earlier had said I could never be a programmer and that was what Rust had achieved for me. It was like, oh, I I can do this. And I obviously was not an expert in Rust at the time and my code was pretty, pretty horrible. And I had a very patient (laughs) uh, open source maintainer who like helped shepherd me through that process, but that was what good tooling and good developer experience meant to me. And so that's what I wanted to, that's what I see the core of good tooling, the core of good developer tooling of Yes Code B. All of the tooling around the things that aren't the core thing you're trying to do, package management, things like that, should be super easy. Beautiful error messages that don't just tell you what you did wrong, but like why and then teach you how to use the product. Presumably that's building you towards having these incredibly powerful primitives that you can wield and help represent your complex system.
0: I can definitely relate to your experience using C and having to do memory management yourself. My journey wasn't to Rust, it was actually to Swift. And... Before Swift, it was Objective-C. In an early Objective-C, you had to do your own resource counting. And then they had ARC, which is automatic resource counting. And then in Swift, you don't even have to think about it. It has like basically the same thing built in. When we were first building these systems, we had to invent resource counting and things like that to make it possible to build what we wanted to build. And every engineer, every software developer had to understand how all that stuff worked. And now we've gotten to the point where You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to know about it. It's all hidden beneath a really nice layer of abstraction. And for me, that's the recurring theme in everything I've ever done about programming, whether it's helping engineers level up their skills or teaching somebody how to use a new specific kind of domain level tool. It's all about harnessing the power of abstraction. And for me, building a tool like a YesCode tool or a developer tool, it's not always the technical challenge. It's almost an artistic challenge of choosing the right abstraction. So you know the comment that you made about error messages that don't just tell you what you did wrong, but they tell you how to fix it. I think a really great example of that is if you look at Stripe. If you've ever used a Stripe SDK, whether it's PHP, Ruby, Python, whatever, whenever you hit an error, it doesn't just tell you the error, it tells you the error and where to go to find the solution, which I think is a really, really good pattern to follow. What I really want to get into is Oso and the problem space of authorization. And I want to start with a differentiation between authentication and authorization. I know a lot of people confuse those two terms. They don't understand what they are right off the bat. So maybe you can tell us what the difference between the two are and what you're focused on with Oso. Yeah, absolutely. Typically those two things just bundled together as auth. Authentication,
1: it's all about identifying who the user is. That's your typical login flow. You have username and password, maybe multi-factor roles, maybe single sign-on, but all of that piece is authentication right? Identifying like who the user is. Authorization is typically the piece that comes next. And now that I know who you are, what are you allowed to do? And so the piece that I also focus on specifically is authorization for application logic. You're building a typical B2B SaaS product. And you need need to decide, like, what can users do inside the application? Authorization there is covering, how do I want that app to work? Do I want people to have a collaboration system where they can invite people to collaborate on something? Do I want it to model their organization structure into groups and teams? Can people set things as private? All of that is your core application authorization.
0: Interesting. What does Oso provide in this space? What did you see as an opportunity for the developers to extract out of their application into a library, into something that they can consume with a simpler interface and hopefully a high level of functionality. What was the kind of delineation there?
1: Yeah, in the fact, we we broke down authorization into kind of a few different areas of complexity and like few different pieces you need to solve. So there's like the modeling piece, which is how do you want your authorization logic to work? The, the piece I just touched on, is it roles, sharings, groups? And just figuring out how do you go and implement that? Like, how do you write the logic? How do you build the data model? Stuff like that. We talk about enforcement which is how do you take that model, that modeling piece, and how do you make sure it's enforced or carried out in the application? How do you integrate that with your app? And this can be everything from inside your core application, can we use to do something? It might mean filtering the database data based on what people can do. It might be like making the UI authorization aware, so it covers quite a lot. And then finally, there's like the architecture piece, which is if you're solving this across multiple services, and you want it all to work consistently. You just figure out how to take all that stuff and share it, share the logic, share the data around, things like that. Also exists to basically solve this through all those three areas. This is something that people typically spend a lot of time building themselves. And we ultimately we want developers to spend about a tenth of the time that they currently do on an authorization. And so yeah, so we do that
0: by building a product that, that solves the, the problems across those three areas. This is really interesting to me. You said developers will often build this themselves. Why is there such a tendency for developers or product teams to build this themselves versus use something else? Why don't they use a tool? It comes down to the complexities of those three areas I spoke about.
1: And it's funny because when we started out on going down this path, a lot of people we spoke to was like, I just don't see how this could possibly be done as a separate product. It's so deeply interwoven with my core application. How could this possibly be a separate app? We've seen like 22 different patterns of how people want their authorization system to work. Naturally, when you go out looking and you see a thing that does back, it doesn't fit like your 22 different patterns, it does one of them. Or similarly for enforcement, right, I just spoke about it could be integrated everywhere from the UI back to the database. And so you sort of look at that high degree of customization, tons of different places to integrate it. It's really, really hard to build a product that can actually do all those things with someone. And so it just hasn't existed
0: previously. So people have only been able to build it themselves. What inspired you all to tackle this problem? Why did you go out and build Oso in the face of it being such a complex problem and it also being something that's so tightly coupled to my application that people don't believe that it can be separated out? What inspired you to do it? First of all, I love a good hard problem. Complex problems are the most fun. So I just had the
1: personal, I'm not going to shy away from a hard problem. The reason that we started the company in the first place was way more broadly just to make security more fun for developers it was something i saw from my phd in cryptography was that it was like a, a topic an area that people would often like shy away from and be scared to work on that was like the main thing that we were trying to solve when we started those, so and authorization it just came up again and again as something that people were spending months if not years on on building re-implementing multiple times nobody enjoyed it product managers were unhappy because those features that they wanted to get shipped that no one wanted to work on your engineers didn't want to work on it it was people it was buggy it was all these kinds of things. I don't know, we just saw that in inside of all of that like mess and stuff that people were fighting with was actually what I think is a really, really fun, interesting problem, which is figuring out how do you want your app to work?
0: I definitely had this experience at a company that I worked at in the past where we had an authorization system baked into the app that was organically grown over a period of 10 plus years. There were all kinds of random checks throughout the code base. And it was all very brittle in that if we changed our pricing or if we added a new product level, we had to go through the whole app and find all kinds of stuff and fix it. And there was a major project where they put a team of many engineers for a period of two to three years to redo the whole thing. It was insanely difficult to change. So I wonder with also, are you targeting to go after existing applications and replace their current system? Or are you targeting to go from day one and be included? What's the surface area of a developer who's considering, okay, I work at this company we have this problem of authorization, and what do I do? We definitely strive to be
1: easy enough to use users from day one. I think that the challenge is for a lot of startups getting started. The logic then is very simple. You maybe have an admin column and an if statement says, you know, if you're an admin, you can do this. Otherwise, sort of. it's kind of hard to beat that level of simplicity, and it's kind of hard to recommend someone brings in any kind of third-party dependency for that. I think in the future, we'll get there. But today, what we typically see is people talk with us when they hit some kind of like an inflection point of complexity. They're moving from static roles to, as you say, fine-grained resource-specific roles. Or they're moving from monolith to, to multiple services this is the other big one where they're like, oh, we need to pull this out. You're going through a giant migration then anyway. It's a great time to be like,
0: maybe I should look at the existing product. When you're thinking about what to include, what's the boundary? What's in, what's out? How do you decide that? Yeah, it's a, it's a super tough one. Um, you know,
1: we we from the beginning strive to be sort of as respectful of your application as possible. Um, and there's kind of two different places two different places where, where that um, shows itself. So we have the the open source library, typically geared towards monoliths. and then we have the, the Oso Cloud product, which is for those multiple services. And they have sort of different trade-offs. Um, you know, in in the library, you know, what we what we did is that you you know represent your authorization logic using using Polar, which is that policy language for, for authorization logic. Um, and it has the capability of like expressing logic over your existing application data. And so, we, you know, we have, um, you know, mechanisms where you evaluate the policy and then Osof can basically go and reach into your database and fetch your data. And so that means that, you know, when you build your app, you basically can not think about authorization and sort of have it as this like separate piece. Um, for multiple services, that's, that's just not possible. You like fundamentally need to share data around. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be that, we want to be that place to share that data to store your core authorization data. Um, That that itself gets really messy because there's a very blurry line between application data and authorization data. Um, We actually have like a whole taxonomy we've written out that sort of talks about like when you should put it in cloud and when you shouldn't. Um, And it basically focuses on are you primarily using this for authorization? Is it a role? Is it permission? Is it something like a group that's mostly used for that? If so, it goes inside so, If not, Inside your application, and we we just make sure we build the tooling that makes it as easy as possible to integrate those two things.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the the developer first run experience? So you know, I kind of get this idea of Oso is great for authorization. If I'm a monolith, I can use the library. If I'm doing a microservices distributed thing, I can use the cloud product to have you know access to my same kind of logic across my whole uh, infrastructure. If I'm going to uh, kind of implement Oso into my application. You know, one of the things that I think about with YesCode is that the 1st run experience should be really straightforward. And what's the 1st run experience like for a developer implementing Oso? Maybe they're going through kind of what you said, that migration. They're saying, hey, we have hit an inflection point. We want to make a change. What do they experience as they go through that path?
1: Typically, what we see people do in any of these cases is they will They'll basically take Oso and they'll use it to implement one one use case. Maybe it's something new they can do previously. Maybe it's just something they want to, um, you know, the first thing they want to pull out of that of that monolith and put it into a microservice. Um, it's like pretty easy to get started with, um, just like one nice self-contained use case. that You can kind of prove it out, and we we sort of make that as as easy as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of like gradually, you can sort of move over um, more and more and more stuff into Oso. The I'd say, you know, for us though, the first experience doesn't even necessarily start then. I mean, we, we kind of want to show you the, the sort of, the fun of using Oso is like as soon as possible. Um, so like today, what you can do is you can go to the website, you can go, you know, sign into the uh, kind of like sandbox environment, get like a, you know, environment that you can uh, play around with, you know, there's no billing or credit card details, something like that, you just go log straight in. Um, and you have, you know, sandbox instance, Oso fly ready to go. You have, you know, like a the command line interface you can download, you have an auth token you can go, and we sort of give you some guidance so that you can just like start putting policies, and start putting data into it and like try it out. Um, so you don't even need to like integrate it to your app to get started. You can just, you can put, you can write the logic you want to try and do. You can put some example data in, you can try it out. Um, even that we found was like, ah, you know, it's kind of a lot. you got to like download it, you got to do some things. So uh, we actually just recently like embedded that experience into the dashboard itself. So you can just kind of like, hammer a button and it basically just like takes you through the steps of like, here's a policy, here's some data, cool, everything's working. Um, Cause we just want people to, to see that like that, that, that is what it's going to be like with Oso. It's like, you just, you put some data in it, you write some policy, you can now do authorization. Like it's as simple as that.
0: So in terms of trade-offs, right? So we talked about, you know, developers often build this themselves. They spend lots of time on it. What are the trade-offs, um, you know, build versus buy? Um it doesn't have to specifically be OSO, but obviously your experience, you're talking about OSO. But when it comes to authorization, you know, what am I trading off in the positive and in the negative by choosing to buy an outside product or or use an open source library or you know, kind of offload that part? And what am I gaining?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I guess as I said earlier, you know, historically there hasn't been a good option to, to buy instead of build. So, so everyone's done it. Um and if you look at companies who have done this there's some kind of some good engineering blog posts out there from uh, people like Airbnb, Slack, Carter, Google wrote a whole paper on this. Like you can sort of see people who've built this in the past. And it's, it's been, mm-hmm. you know, full team of engineers, like six to eight engineers for like multiple years and then full-time maintenance not keeping it. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the cost of, of building. And, you know, I guess if, you know, if you're a, and if you be an engineer or an engineering manager or something out there, and you're like, oh, what can I do if I had that team to work on something else? Um, you know, that's, that's the cost of building it yourself.
0: That's a huge thing. That's a pretty big thing. Yeah, like a little more fun stuff they could be doing. This is something that I think is a pattern among the yes code tools that I've seen. It's that existing companies that have high-performing engineering teams that are able to invest in building the best internal tools will build systems like, also oh, for authorization for themselves or in another problem domain, they'll build an internal tool or an internal open source project. And then over time, the engineering community will notice that companies are doing this pattern over and over again. And somebody will spin up a company and turn it into an open source library with a SaaS attached, or they'll turn it into a, a developer-focused product and say, you too can have the best tool in the industry that if you had an entire engineering team at your company to build it, you would build this. Exactly. But not everybody has it. And we all get to benefit because, you know, something like authorization is orthogonal to our business. You know, you and me could have two different companies that are uh, competitive to each other, but authorization through a third party and we buy that, we both benefit by not spending the time, effort, the money on a problem that is not going to directly give either one of us a competitive advantage. And I will say, I mean, I have met and spoke with
1: companies who do see a really clean authorization story is like one of the um, like core value props, which I think is great, you know, giving people really good insight into what you can access and, and things like that. But it's definitely not the, not the typical thing. Generally, authorization is like if, if you did everything right, no one knows it's there kind of, kind of situation.
0: What's interesting about this too, and I wonder if this corresponds to anything in your product, I see a lot of SaaS that charge for the enterprise level, the, the corporate level product based off of permissioning and security and that kind of a feature set and i wonder if there's a correlation between the companies like you were saying they 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 make that part of their pitch of saying we have a really great authorization story and kind of your customer you know your ideal customer or the type of people that are using Oso, is that um can you can you make a a case that will we make it easier to make that enterprise level jump as well.
1: I mean, we don't need to make that case. It's normally the other way around. People come to us because they're like, this has become a sales blocking issue for us. Okay. Uh, We're talking with blah, blah, you know, Fortune 500 company and they need this feature and we don't want to take six months because we want to land this deal. Can you help accelerate it? Like our, our favorite people to speak to is like high growth, high growth startups who are going up market and they see this being like a thing that unlocks like bigger deals for them.
0: So I love the way that you broke down the product into three core areas, modeling, enforcement, and architecture. Um, As the developer, I really appreciate when I go to documentation, I saw this on your website as well, um, that you kind of present it this way in your docs. Um, But I love when I see something that helped me grok the the whole system. What I want to talk about next is about the primitives that you expose. So um, within those kind of areas, what are the the high-level primitives you expose to the developer uh, to utilize um, for modeling, enforcement, and architecture of the system?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you ran with the structure. Everything we think about, we think about in those terms. So for modeling, we we basically built Polar. It's a declarative logic-based language for expressing authorization logic. And so it's something that we've been iterating on for, I don't know, well over two years at this point. Um, and basically, there's a there's a kind of a few pieces to that. There's the kind of the lower level piece of it, the, that kind of like logic language that makes it very easy to write composable authorization logic. And then there is a, you know, coming back to the abstractions we spoke about at the beginning, we sort of give you some high-level abstractions over that that makes it sort of very easy to drop in um, the sort of different authorization patterns you can eat without needing to necessarily drop all those low-level details.
0: What are some examples of those abstractions?
1: Uh, roles. Is a is it, is it one that like everybody needs, but is like, you know, do you have like organization roles? You know, you're a member of an org. Do you have like project-level roles where you can... Um, additionally, be an admin on a project, and that gives you some extra granularity um, sharing, which is something you often implement with roles. Like all of these under the hood, look very simply different. It's just like a relationship that you have with a particular resource. But we've just found that people like to think in terms of like the features of the patterns they are familiar with, rather than like kind of graph-based relational logic and things like that. Makes sense. So that's modeling um, on the enforcement side of this. So we're talking about like how do you integrate this with your application? Uh, this kind of comes to the sort of client SDKs or libraries that we build out. Uh, we sort of found that there is fundamentally kind of two, again, like two kind of low-level primitives that you that you need in this. Um, there's sort of the manipulation of the data, so reading and writing data. So this is, you know, telling also that a user has a particular role in organization mm-hmm. and reading that back. And then there's like the authorization querying that comes around that which is like, okay, given all the data I told you, given all the logic that I've told you, can a user read this document? And so we sort of have like a query interface that allows you to ask that kind of question. Now, those themselves are actually pretty, those are like incredibly flexible primitives in that you can query not just, you know, can you read this document, but you can say, what are all the documents you can read? You can say, what are all the things you can do on this document? You say, what are all the users that have permission to read this document, right? You You can compose all the different kinds of like authorization kind of questions you might want to ask. So
0: you're not forcing them into one way of approaching the problem. You can say, you know, you're rendering a page, what actions can this user do? Now you have a list of actions, not for each action you might want to do on the page, you have a conditional statement. Precisely because because that's the thing. So you need it own all these different places, like
1: authorization, the enforcement happens all these different points. And so yeah, you want to build that like responsive UI that uses that authorization data. If you can get back yeah, the user can read, write, but not delete this document. And you can like hide the or gray out, you know, the delete button. And now you've got this like really rich authorization interface. So, have, building this primitive that gives you that flexibility to ask those different kinds of questions is what powers that. On the architecture side of things, the sort of the, you know, the primitive, is a bit of a pattern here, right? <laughs> the primitive is basically the, the OSO service itself. Um, we've built this to be a, you know, incredibly. Um scalable service that basically you know enables us to clone a read replica of your data many times anywhere around the world so you can kind of get instant access to um authorization sessions these are kind of like very nice like self-contained services that we um that we built and then basically we sort of give you the and so that's like the core thing of query, and that's like solving that the architecture problems um, and then that sort of has some simple uh things you can do with it you know like create multiple environments that if you want to know, you test some changes before putting them into production. You can do that inside your dev environment. If you, um, you can know, spin up a new branch and have it have a new environment that goes along with that branch, so you can you know show someone the impact of your PR and, and, and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of like the
0: the piece you get from the 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 sort of the service piece. I had a couple of questions. You built this language called Polar. Um, you said it's a declarative, like DSL type of language. Why did you make the decision? That there had to be a language here, right? Like, what what properties does that give you? And you know, why, also, why is it declarative? Like, why did you make those decisions? And how how does it make the architecture of the system, also, and the in the whole service
1: better for the the users? We could do a whole we could do a whole podcast on just that just, <laughs> just that one. I I mean, it's there's There's a lot to it. There is, I think, the nature of authorization as a problem is is very branching conditional logic, you know, it's, you know, you're in GitHub and you want to know, do you have permission to close an issue or something? And like, you know, the reason you might have permission to close an issue is because you might've been the person who opened it, or you might um, have a role inside of a repository that the issue belongs to. Um, You might have a role in the organization that repository belongs to, and the organization has a default role, which grants you that permission. And it's like, if this, then this, if this, and this, if this. So like that... That kind of problem is just very well suited to logic languages is what they do well. Um, it allows you to kind of ex- extract that logic out into really nice, like reusable components.
0: I'd imagine that it being, uh, you know, written in a declarative language also lends itself to the distribution. One of the features you had talked about was that you can run this across multiple different services within your entire infrastructure. So how does the polar language, you know, encoding of your rules and whatnot, Lead to that like feature ability
1: right exactly so like by yeah by extracting that logic out and having it in a in you know in a policy file and in a separate language it means it's very easy to reason about it separately and have that decoupled from the app, even just in a monolith situation but yeah you know, in the multiple services one even more importantly that you can have you know that all that shared you know logic you can have that in one place and that could power decisions for you know any kind of downstream application node or go or, or whatever they can all you
0: know reuse that shareable logic and then on the enforcement and architecture side, I think this kind of spans both of those. Um, you were talking about how you can query uh, kind of the decisions and then the how the backend service is like globally replicated and and all that stuff. What I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you you had mentioned it's fast, it's highly reliable, et cetera, et cetera. But what helps you achieve that? Like how is it that you know that team of six engineers at a medium to large size company built their own system versus you and the team at Oso built a backend infrastructure that's globally scalable, replicated, et cetera. What are you doing to make that uh, so performant?
1: Well, actually, we're learning from what they did. I mean, we have one of the original authors and one of the original engineers um, on the Google project, for example, as an advisor of ours. So yeah, we're, we're learning from what the, the same things they did. Um, there's the sort of the, I think there's like a few, there's a few subtle details on, like, how we built the, the language and how that evaluates that I think makes it easier for us to build things performantly. Um, but, yeah, honestly, I think, we you know, we're, we're learning from the same things they did. So the interesting thing about authorization, um, it's very, very read-heavy. Typically, like, two orders of the magnitude more reads than writes because you think about it, like, pretty much every request that goes through app is going to do an authorization check. But how often is it actually going to go and, like, write new authorization data? And so... You know, like our approach to that is we sort of have um, kind of like a single writer, multi-reader model where we just, we make it very, very easy for us to add more readers to this. And our readers are basically these like self-contained services, written in Rust, so they can be pretty performant. They use an embedded SQLite database so that we don't even have that additional like network hop. SQLite, when you're purely just doing reads and, um, you know, we can kind of compile our we basically compile our like authorization logic into very efficient like flat SQL queries. Those two together is just like it just it, they just like sync. Are you just putting those SQL like databases in memory too? We just throw it all in memory. Yeah, if we if we need more, we can you know we can virtually scale those single instances a lot. Um, you know, we provision these for you know one com- one company one organization. We can you know virtually scale those up a ton. We can horizontally scale them a lot. Um, and we haven't even got to the point yet, but you know these these kinds of problems are pretty easily, like, shardable as well. So if, you know, we we get to a point where a company has, you know, their tens of thousands of companies that they are serving, they could shard by a customer and, you know, you've just given yourself an extra, you know, dimension of scalability. Um, But, you know, again, none of this is new. Like, this is is the same kind of stuff that Google did with Zanzibar.
0: What's really interesting about the way you talk about this stuff, it's like, if I'm a a user of Oso and I don't have that engineering team um, that's building this whole system, it's almost like, you know, the crew over at Oso are that engineering team doing all of this really cool stuff. And this conversation we're having is kind of like, you know, me feeling like I'm walking down the hall, talking to the engineering team that works on auth and hearing all about all the cool stuff they're doing. So I really love this. I'm so glad you said that. I mean,
1: that's how we think of ourselves. Like, I we just want to be that extension of your engineering team. And that's how we treat it a lot. It's like, when you, you know, if you, when you come and work with us, you know, we'll do, I will do actually, you know, like pairing sessions with them, figuring out what model they want, you know. Figuring out know, how to get things working, like, with, you know, with F or with F to help you get it working.
0: You made a comment about authorization rights being much lower magnitude. And I had a question about that because I can kind of think of two types of rights to the authorization system. One is writing, for example, a member of an org has the permission to read any issue in the org, let's say, or something like that. Where it's not about any one particular user, it's about like the structure of my app and the resources within my app. And then there's, for example, a different kind of right, which is like John joined the team. Right. Do you have a better way to talk about that? Was there a specific way I should be thinking about that? You nailed it. That is the right way to think of it,
1: but we just call that logic and data. That is the separation. So the the abstract logic you just described would be in the would be in your policy code. So typical thing for teams, what you'll say. Um, the logic would say, you know, a you write a sort of a has role rule. You say a user has a role, some role on an organization. If, you know, is member, user, team, and has role, team, role on the org. Like that's literally the three lines of code you'd write in, in Polar. Mm-hmm. Um, the data there, you would write it into Oso by saying, you know, like Oso, tell is member, John, Eng. Like, and, and that, like, so that, like, is member, is the data, and that's exactly what the logic is written over. And so those two things, like, fully just
0: in sync. Very cool. Um, so last thing I wanted to ask you about, like, kind of primitives and all of this stuff, is this is a really awesome design. Um, were there any experiences in your time as an engineer or, um, you know, within the team that really led you to this design that, that in- inspired, you know, this path? Or is it, like you were saying before, you know, kind of tried and true, and we're making it broadly available? Uh, no, this has been a long, this has been a long path. The Polar
1: piece has been a long, long path on, on trying to get it right. We hit on the logic programming piece of it when an engineer on the team basically as like a little weekend project came back and was like, hey, I think a prologue would be a good fit for this and did a little POC of, of like how you'd represent this logic as prologue. And are like, oh, that's that, that's awesome. We should like do that. So is Polar a prologue? Currently, but it's morphing a lot. So it's actually, we're tending more towards a, um, thing called mini Canarin. Which This is like one of the kind of the big lessons. So I'll try and give like the the cliff notes, the high level version, right? So, you know, we started out with Prologue. You know, Prologue is built to be in a fully general purpose logic programming language that you can write. You know, and what it's like really good at, for example, is writing DSLs in Prologue. That's like how powerful Mm -hmm. it is. You can write web servers in Prologue. Incredibly powerful. And that was something that was... It's kind of like too powerful for our needs. And it like inc- introduced a lot of complexity for us on like building that full full on language that can do anything. Um, we also had this challenge of like the data versus the logic, which I, I'd say we got like 90% of the way of just like getting it really right, which is that you want your logic to be logic and you want your data to stay as data and have that separation. Um, but we had it so that you would often write inside your policy very data specific things like how to, ref- you know, what fields to reference or what methods mm-hmm. to call, things like that. Where we sort of ended up getting to this sort of like final state of, of Polar was, um, yeah, based on this idea of mini and uh, there's this great PhD thesis by, I think it's William Bird. I really hope I didn't get that wrong. He wrote his PhD thesis on this new idea of mini Canren, which is, it's also a logic language, but it's called like a relational um, programming language. And the kind of the crux of it is that you, um, the logic that you write expresses relationships between its inputs which is like exactly what you want authorization to do. It's like, okay, I have a user and I have a repository or whatever. I want to like understand the relationship between them. What it really clearly encapsulates is this idea that you can, you know, ask it things like, um, I have a user and you know, the thing they're trying to do is read and the thing they're trying to do it to is of type repository, but I don't know exactly what it is. And you get back the relations that need to exist. Like, oh, okay, well, this needs to be a repository that belongs to an organization that the user has a member role for. And, you know, it returns those relationships you need to go and check. And that's what we go and query for. This all like fell into place and felt like we like finally got to like the right exact kind of right balance of what the language needs to do, what the sort of the query can do, what we need push down to like SQLite or, or already anything else. Was
0: there any kind of use case for the tool that you totally didn't expect that you saw people using? And can you tell me about it and if it was challenging for you in any way? Oh, there's been
1: plenty. There is, um one company that's using us for some like workload orchestration, scheduling things. Um, you know, they're using the fact that the, you know, Polar is a pretty powerful logic language to be able to, to represent things like, you know, you, you know, you cannot schedule this task if it's already got five things running or you, know, you can only provision this kind of resource on these kinds of instances and stuff like that. Honestly, I don't say they don't full details, but that one is definitely a little bit out there. Um, and, it, you know, at times kind of dovetails with what I was just saying. You know, at times it can definitely be challenging to tell people like that, like, you know, you, what you're doing is really outside of what we're kind of intending. And so like, you know, you might be vary in terms of like how smooth that experience is. We try to be honest and upfront with like things that we haven't anticipated doing yet.
0: I just think about, you know, um, unexpected use cases uh, of things. Uh, there was a product I worked on once that essentially developers just started using it as a key value store and it, it really just like hammered the utilization and it was a huge performance problem for us. So we had to kind of throttle some of that behavior. Uh, So it's always interesting to see what kind of unintended uh, outcomes you get. Um, The other thing about users is, uh, I was wondering if you might be able to tell us either specifically or kind of like vaguely related to an industry or something, you know, a story of a development team that picked up Oso and solved some problems.
1: I think one of my favorite, Favorite examples was when we, work, we worked with uh, Intercom. Um, so there's an engineer there who's on the sort of security engineering team, and they were in the typical situation where logic was spread all over the application. It was very hard to know like what was happening where. If you had a, if you wanted to make a change, you had to go to and different places to make it work. And they had you know new features upcoming that they wanted to support, and so they they were sort of looking at, okay, hey, maybe we can consolidate that logic into one place. But that was just like a great experience because they you know. We, we sort of had like a channel in Slack where we were like keeping on, on top of things and they were like sending us, you know, results of it going through their you know, full production testing suite where they'd showed, you know, everything's been cut over and you know, here are the metrics of it running. We paired on some really interesting gnarly Ruby bugs. I learned more than I want to know about Ruby enumerators. Um, And yeah, ultimately, you know, they had this like PR where they deleted like 4,000 lines of tests that they just didn't need anymore. Oh, that's awesome. That's going to be the best feeling ever, just deleting that much. It's like, the logic is just encapsulated in this like small part of a policy file. So that that was great. They were happy. We were happy. It really did embody that like principle that we just felt like an extension of their engineering team that
0: we were just like chatting through Slack together and like making things work. That story I was telling you before of the company that that replaced their authorization system. Because all the code was all strewn about and we wanted to prevent regressions, one of my coworkers created a library for doing A-B testing of code paths. So what essentially you would do is you'd have the old auth logic and the new auth logic, and you deploy that to production in two branches, and you'd have the control and the experiment. And the control, which was the original code, is what would be used to make any decisions. And the experiment code would also be executed And the two results would be compared and sent to effectively like an analytics backend. And over the course of those years, the percentage of disagreements between the control and the experimental code had to go to zero before we could shift things over. And then using like a feature flag, we essentially said, don't use the control code anymore, use the experimental code because it all agrees all the time. But it was so irregular and so unpredictable that the only way to be confident was to like literally just run it in production for years. (laughs) What do you wish... Also had in terms of features or or components that is not quite there yet. What are you planning on adding to the product in the coming months?
1: You know, if summary summarize the current state of of Oso, Oso Clouds, I think we've worked most on those low level primitives. I think we've got those to a point where they're really solid. I think there's a lot I'm excited to do in terms of the high level abstractions on top. Um, you know, in the you know for the modeling, I think you know making sure that we can easily represent all twenty two patterns and have them working. I think the opportunities for the stuff we can build on top of this are kind of limitless. Some of the things that we've like kind of kicked the tires on is, you know, having a really nice visualizer for your policy so you can kind of see it represented graphically instead of having to look through the, the codes. I think there's a lot of great tooling we can build around this where um, you can probably in- interact with your policy like inside inside the dashboard. You can um, stuff like... I think there's a lot, to, a lot of great stuff for, that we could be inspired by from companies like PlanetScale, where they have like really beautiful UIs and flows around creating those like branches of that database and like running tests against it and running migrations and schema changes, or, you know, they've got features like the rewind feature, where if like you do a migration, you want to rewind it, that you won't like lose any data. There's like all of those kinds of things. like you can build tooling. You can build around developer experience stuff. You can build around when you have like the right primitives in place. That's that's like what I'm can't wait to like for
0: us to go and build and to and and to have and that's like on the roadmap. For the high level abstractions, I think for all of the kind of yes code style tools that I've looked at, you know, the primitives are kind of the bread and butter. Every developer wants high level primitives that they can remax, compose however they want to fit, you know, any of those twenty two different ways that you've observed people wanting to do things. But then I'm a developer who's really lazy, also efficient. I just want to pick something up off the shelf that does, you know, team-based authorization. And so the idea that, you know, you want to have these high-level abstractions is like totally in line with what I think people want. Um, I would love to be able to say on day one, I'm building a product. It's going to have a Teams feature or an Orgs feature. How many many SaaS products go through the evolution of like, there's a, a single user and then there's the Org user, right? And they have to do the same migration and all this stuff. And if you could just click a button and say, add, add orgs to my business and have all the permissioning and stuff work automatically or relatively quickly i think that'd be super powerful
1: laziness right it's one of the three great virtues of programming it's like seriously that's that's why i started programming in the first place because it's lazy
0: in closing are there any tools or products or open source libraries or things that you've seen recently that you're just really in love with that you think anybody who might be interested in yes code would also find interesting i'm always looking for new things to check out and i'm sure Others are as well.
1: So I mentioned PlanScale already. I think they're definitely worth looking at. I I think they embody YesCode pretty well. Um, Another one that I think is a really great developer experience story in the YesCode style is is Prisma. Something that they have put painstaking effort into is the. So Prisma is kind of like a, hopefully this, I'll do them justice, but you know, it's like a modern RM, maybe not in a kind of traditional way, but you know, it gives you a way of representing your. Yeah, you know, they have a DSL for writing your your schemas, and then the thing that I think they do beautifully well is they take that database schema, and they generate like a type safe TypeScript, uh, like a code generated TypeScript API for it. So that when you're you know going and saying you know I want to query my whatever you know, query my repositories and filter by uh,
0: organization, sort by block, like those fields are all going to be type checked because it knows the schema. So in your IDE right away, you don't even have to do anything. Oh, that's amazing! I love that.
1: I just think that like that little example there is a is a is a really um it's just a great great example of like the when you you know go all in on developer experience the kinds of things you can do. And I would, I would love to do something like that and so Yeah, I love I love
0: things that make the you know, when I'm sitting in my editor writing code, making it so that I don't have to do, you know, 15 steps to get to how to test this thing. Um just knowing from writing the code that it's going to work or not is is so valuable it's like even though it's only like a, you know 15 seconds saved or whatever as a developer that just feels like a huge productivity boost when you don't have to do it hundreds of times per day right that loop it's
1: the hot loop where you're optimizing it's the you do that 15 seconds thousand times a day <laughs> it, if
0: folks want to get started with Oso, give it a try where should they
1: go pretty much everything you want to find you can find through the website osohq.com. Uh, given everything we spoke about today and i think it the kinds of people who are listening to this and if they're like nodding vigorously, I would say just drop me an email directly, sam at o You can just hit me up and if you want to chat about any of this stuff, I'm available. But if you'd rather do it sort of via computer, you can, through our website, we have like a Slack community you can find. You can email us, you can intercom us, you can do any of them.
0: Excellent. Well, that's very generous of you to offer to talk to people directly. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been an awesome conversation. I've really loved it. And I look forward to speaking with you some more in the future. I appreciate you having me. This is, yeah, it's a little fun for me too. To find out more and stay in the loop with YesCode, head to yescode.org.